Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's edition of The Group Chat. I am news correspondent Richard Chambers. I am joined beside me by political correspondent Gavin Riley. Richard, how are you? And fellow news correspondent Zara King. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you keeping, guys? Yeah, good, not actually, not too bad, yeah. We are joined in the studio by Alina Kalmakova from Ukraine. There's been a lot of talk about Ukrainian refugees over the last while. A lot of talk about Ukrainians, but not a lot of talk with Ukrainians, I think, in the media. Is that something you've noticed yourself, do you think? Uh, I think, yes, sometimes happens. And, yeah. and it happened to me. I've been interviewed already. So I'm glad to be here today in this studio. Let's We're so delighted you came in, aren't we? We're thrilled. Definitely. Like, thank you so much for making the journey out. I thank suppose. you for inviting. Yeah, no, definitely. And this isn't your first interview thing. You've done a couple before. Uh, I've done a couple before yeah. and uh, all of them were published also over the media. Like, uh, But this one is first on the TV, I think. Well, thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. And we're honoured to have you we for your first TV slot. First TV appearance. Yeah. Alina, yeah. take us back to, to what happened in your life from February 24th. What happened in your life? How did it change from that date? Insane, because previously I lived a totally good life. I was absolutely satisfied and I was traveling a lot. And actually I came back to Ukraine after traveling to Portugal, then to Italy. And I found out there is uh, something being happened in country which I wasn't thinking about and I wasn't ready. Um, then I had to flee in from war and uh, I was fleeing from war actually the 1st of March. Uh, then escaped to Budapest, stayed there uh, about two weeks and then moved to Ireland. And actually it wasn't, incre- it wasn't incredible because uh, I haven't thought about it. I could never imagine I would be traveling to Ireland because it was the only one uh, country opened to Ukrainians uh, who are English speaking. Mm. So I understood there was um, the only one um, good country because um, I had already English experience uh, in English, um, working, working with English because I was engaged in the different international projects. So I thought that would be nice. And I have never been there before. And um, most of the people, they told me it would be a very nice country. You would like it. Nice. So, Can you tell us about that process from when you left your home in Kiev, isn't it? Kiev, yeah. When you left there and you, how did you find that process of getting across Europe? Because that's been quite difficult for a lot of people. What was it like? For you? Uh, first by foot, then uh, paying crazy amount of money for taxi with uh, crossing the border because it wasn't impossible to cross by foot. Uh, it was huge lines of people staying there and waiting to be uh, invited to, uh, to other countries. Um, then Hungary, Hungary wasn't that special. They were trying to help and locals were engaged, but no one could understand what was happened. So. For me, it was totally insane. Uh, I would say, uh, I would say honestly, I w- was almost sleeping two weeks staying there. But I found a job. Uh, then I found out it was impossible to stay for a long time because, uh, anyways, uh, I have to learn local language, which is not that simple. Hungarian is a difficult language. It's, yeah. it's a bit of a yeah, it's a quirky yeah, it's one. Difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. So this this why this why happened. Ireland happened to me. 
so after two weeks then in Hungary, you decide that Ireland is where you want to come and you've already heard that Ireland is open to, to people from your country, yeah, especially with the language. Yeah. Um, how did you find it getting here? And then where did you end up sleeping for the first while that you were here? Oh, I ended up sleeping uh, in a gym. I was accommodated in a gym because uh, it was uh, St. Patrick's Day and were lack of hotels accommodation. Mm. And uh, then uh, later, one of my friends, because I was fleeing from war with my neighbor, who I saw the first time in my life, she was a uh, sister of my designers at my work. And uh, she asked to pick up her sister too. So we decided to flee together because it would be much more easier for two girls traveling together. You mentioned the gym for the first couple of nights. So what was that? What was that like? Was that sort of like camp beds and it's sort of on a gym uh, floor? What was Not Ukrainians only were yeah. in there. Also some people from Nigeria and Morocco, maybe, I don't know, different countries. And um, all the locals were very friendly towards us. They were trying to help. Uh, if one of those ladies even brought me pajama because I was asking for, I had no, I had no, nothing to yeah. choose. Yeah. And she brought her own pajama, a new one from Primark. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah. That was That's lovely. Fine, that was yeah. really lovely. Yeah. So all of them were acting very friendly. They were very supportive. But um, this is not conditions of staying. People really have to stay in. It's abnormal, I think. But that's what a lot of people now are. That's yeah. the situation now is it's mm. become worse yeah. over the last they number can... of weeks. So that's actually become quite normal for a lot of people is to be in that sort of camp beds on a gym floor sort of situation at this point. I think they have no other choice because uh, most of them, they don't speak any any languages except very uh, small English, mm. Mm. very poor English. So that's why they choose Ireland. And also there was a massive power campaign about Ireland. Massive. That's why. That is the issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because sometimes we, we in Ireland don't realise how much communications there's been outside of the country to make people aware that Ireland is open and available to people from your country. So how early did you find out or how early do people from Ukraine find out that Ireland is willing to take them and that there aren't any visa requirements? Uh, mostly on the Facebook because there are so many uh, Facebook groups for Ukrainians uh, traveling somewhere and fleeing from war and also over the internet because um, Irish government, they put so many messages over the internet also and on the official sites also They uh, that they're, they are already hosting Ukrainians and they are welcoming Ukrainians. But is there any clarity in those messages about the type of accommodation that people can expect? Is there any sort of indication of what is a reasonable expectation when you come to Ireland or is it just a case of come to Ireland and worry uh, about that later? I got it. Uh, first, it was reasonable expectations because uh, they told they would provide some hotels accommodation, mm -hmm. but none of them were provided. And also uh, individuals like me, they were not provided because I was uh, the only one person. I was alone yeah. uh, fleeing from war because my family stays in Ukraine still. Mm -hmm. mm. And so, who is yeah. at, who's at home? Who, who's uh, my mom and my grandma. Grandma, because it's impossible to move for them somewhere. And how are they? So-so, because uh, yeah. Kiev um, feels like absolutely, not not that empty, but uh, people living in the dark. Yeah. That's something I suppose people might have seen that over the headlines for the last while, that power has become scarcer in Kiev mm -hmm. and, and other cities like that because of attacks on infrastructure. I mean, for a while, it seemed like Kiev was escaping you know, it had a quiet number of months, if you could even put it like that. But over the last couple of weeks, it's definitely gotten, you know, more and more into the fire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know I, I know some friends of mine uh, who were traveling to Ireland and they were about settling here because of kids and because of tough conditions of living in Ukraine also. And they even had some money and they were trying to find an accommodation for a crazy amount of money. For example, one room costs uh, 100, 1,300 euros in Klondalkin, just one room. So no, the prices are, are incredible. incredible. Do you get yeah. a chance to talk to your mom and your grandmother often? Do you uh, often, yeah, 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 often. Now they have some issues with 
internet connections. Yeah. But um most but is that a constant do. worry for you, even as you try to establish a life here, that you are constantly worrying about those you've left? I'm constantly home? worrying about them. Yeah. yeah, because no one knows what can happen uh, in a few seconds. Was there ever any time for the the few months where things seemed to be quiet, relatively quiet in Kiev, where where the battle seemed to, to leave the capital, and, and until a few weeks ago when it came back, was there ever a time where you sort of felt tempted, or that you might have felt it was ever safe or comfortable to go back and to be with your your mother and your grandmother? I didn't even visit Kiev. Mm. It's been mm-hmm. almost eight months, seven and a half, as I'm staying here, and uh, I never visit visit Ukraine. Because sometimes people from Ireland that would they would have perceived if they've been following it on the news, but they would have seen a few months go by without there being any mention of any attacks on the capital. So many people might think, well, if it was safe, for example, for the Irish embassy to reopen and for the Irish staff there to go back and to live on the ground and to work there, they would wonder whether it was safe for for people like you to to go back to to home effectively. Well, I have some friends who were uh, who were about. Um who were thinking about uh, traveling back home and some of them even traveled and they are trying to settle again and now what what I see they're messaging me like we are traveling to Portugal we are traveling to Poland we are going to United States we are going to Canada because it's not safe it's not safe and um, the conditions of living are tough I think that's something which I think it's important to sort of stress is that this is anything about your old life becomes completely flipped upside down. And I think that's for, you know, we have that conversation about, well, when will people think about going home? But like their country and their homes will never be the same again. Is that something that you think about as well? I think that is an issue also because they will they will travel to uh, their native cities and then they will find out there is no more Ukraine or Ukraine is totally different. It's It's, it's a different country. And people are different because of mindset. Mindset has changed. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit more about your own life before you left and before the war started? Uh, I mean, you're, you're living in Kiev. You, you told us a little bit about that you have your, your mother and your grandmother there. But what, what is life like? Because, I mean, w- people who might not follow the news that closely will hear of Ukraine. They'll hear of Kiev, but they won't know much about it. They won't know much about what the city is like. Like, I think from people you do hear about Kiev and they talk about such a vibrant city mm-hmm. and a really buzzing sort of culture. I mean, what is Kiev like? What was your life like before you came here? Um, my life was amazing. I was working in... Uh, as a um, uh, as a public relations director for investment company, and for several uh, different projects, I was totally engaged into social life. I was socializing all the time. I was traveling all the time somewhere, and <clears throat> for me, it was like uh, I wouldn't say super high end, but it was good, really good. Mm. So uh, I had interesting circles for communications, like diplomacy circles. Actually, I have the same circles here, also. That's why I like Ireland, also. <laughs> but um, we had uh, good conditions of living because we have now the type of accommodational crisis. Um, we can buy something for us. Yeah, yeah. Prices sometimes are different. They are not mm-hmm. that huge as here, but we can uh, we can pay for accommodation. Uh, we can uh, pay. Here it would be uh, told as a mortgage. Yeah. Well, yeah. At what so point this, in, in the last eight months has it become clear to you that that sort of life and that sort of sort of lifestyle? is unlikely to ever come back because I guess maybe for the first couple of weeks you wonder how long war might be going on for. You don't know how long you might have to leave the country for. You don't know what state the country will be in when you decide to go back. I'm guessing at some point in the last eight months you've realised that if you ever did go back things would never be like they were. I don't know where am where am I in the nearest two weeks because we yeah. have because yeah. even here yes I have someone who is uh, able to host me and that's it. And but but housing problem is is a huge problem. I think the first one in the, in Ireland, and 
maybe I will travel to another country. Maybe many people staying here right now also will travel to another country. Who knows? And most likely I'm unable to return home at least uh, nearest two years. And no one knows what is going to happen after. Because there is a huge risk of uh, huge war. And when you look at the situation now and what Ireland is offering people now, and I suppose the fact that maybe some people might say that um, there was very little notice about this running out, that it was kind of flagged a week in advance. Does that upset you to see that, like, you know, this could have been predicted, that this shortage was coming for such a long time and that how do you feel the Irish government has handled the communications around all of that? Uh, They don't tell anything. They don't provide any information about it. And even yet they haven't provided it. Mm. I think they should mention because there is huge accommodational crisis. We are, yes, we are welcoming you. We will provide you some work permissions and permissions to stay and live. And that is absolutely fair. And we really do appreciate that. And we do really appreciate all that provided help. But you have to say that there is a lack of accommodation. There is shortage of building. We don't um, we don't provide a housing for local people. Be honest. Yeah. Mm. How has you have you seen things change since you arrived here? You arrived here on St Patrick's Day back in March. How is, do you think that the attitude and the the response of Irish people towards Ukraine and to people who have arrived here from Ukraine have you noticed that change in any way? Well, people were very responsive, but I think uh, over the few months something has changed, and I think that's why Irish government provided that um, they doubled the fees. The, the, the pay- payments, payment yes, for, for hosting. For yeah. hosting, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this will only extend the problem. This is not a uh, salvation. But for the the seven months that you've been here, obviously you've become very aware that we had a housing shortage and that housing was very expensive here anyway. Mm. Um, do you think that there's anything that really could have been done differently by the government, knowing that there was already a shortage of accommodation, wanting to try and do the best thing possible for people like you fleeing a war, but not having a, a ready-made stock of accommodation to put you in? Uh, they can only extend our living here. And I think uh, the issue could be they can provide some barracks or housing like for mm. short term period. Of would staying. that be, would that still be preferable? Maybe to because other Germany, options? Germany does the same. And actually, uh, I know about the situation is Germ- in Germany. They provided the type of housing several years ago, but there are so many people staying there for years and years. And then local government would say, uh, you're no, you're no longer able to stay here. We're no longer interested. What has happened Come in those cases? Back. They just expect people to go they home? They have to travel home. Mm. They go home. Yeah, yeah. They have something like the card or something like a permanent stay residence. And instead of that, they can even leave. They can even work. And somehow government shall shall say you, mm, you're no longer needed here. I mean, we've seen, you know, temporary accommodation right across Europe, even particularly at border crossings. Um, I was at Medica at the time in Poland when the war first broke out. And, you know, some of those setups people will understand are fine for, like, as you said, a night or two kind of a temporary basis. But do you think it's time, and you kind of alluded to it there already, that, you know, Ireland be more transparent with people who are coming now about what actually is on offer? And and do you see that transparency taking place? I suppose maybe you don't keep an eye on the the forums as much as you did when you were travelling, but... Do you see that transparency happening now? No, 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 no. No one, no one covers this issue over the media. No one. Okay. Only, only. But you see, local uh, Ukrainian Ukrainians don't uh, monitor like um, Irish media. Yeah, they don't. Uh, because they why don't would search. they? Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah they why don't would search they? for housing problems and all of that. Mm. They were told there would be um, some um, good conditions of living provided, mm. and they're waiting to settle down. I think at least for several years. Mm. But it's impossible. 
What's the atmosphere like amongst Ukrainians who are here now then? I mean, if, if they have that sort of view and they see the situation with regards to accommodation, they see that the atmosphere, as you say, has sort of changed to some degree. What are Ukrainians at the moment talking about in Ireland? Uh, they don't know what to do. Yeah. Because the country itself is amazing. People are amazing. I think the most reason of their staying is uh, are people. People. Mm. So the people are great and the country yeah, isn't. Yeah, it's a treasure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for your nice Thank words you. about the people at least. But um, it must be very difficult to try and get your head around the idea that, that the people are great, but that the government or that society just isn't as equipped to accommodate you as you might have been told. Yes, but we are foreigners and there is nothing we can do. We can argue because we are not locals. We don't have uh, any rights to argue with government. That's it. We can't strike. What What shall we do? We can only say mm, it's a pity. Mm. Alina, one more question for you. I mean, when you look at your country's future, and obviously we're in a situation where nobody knows how long this is going to go on for, but I think everybody around the world has been inspired by what Ukrainian people, how they've pulled together, how they have, you know, endured and showed such resiliency at a hor horrendous time, the worst possible thing that can happen effectively to a country. What do you think the future is for Ukrainians and for Ukraine as a country? When, well, if we are talking about my humble opinion, I think that Ukraine is no longer the same country and most likely uh, not in the same borders. We, we don't know if NATO would be engaged into the conflict. If they're engaged, there would be a huge war. Yeah. If no, anyways, Ukraine would be split between different countries. Who knows? No one. Okay. Or it would be extended conflict for years and years, like five, ten years. Anything can happen. Ukraine uh, somehow is a great country, but absolutely unpredictable. Yeah, it's a horrible situation to be in. But Alina, thank you so much for, for coming in and trying to put into words a lot of what we talk about in the abstract, you know, and about when we talk about accommodation, when we talk about Ukraine and the situation. Thanks so much for coming in and telling thank us first hand. Well, and Alina, can I just say, I think our country is all the more richer for having people like you. So thank you for choosing Ireland and thank you thank for you. being here. Thank you too. Thank you too, guys, because of welcoming. It's really appreciative. Alina Kalmakova there joining us on the group chat a little bit earlier on. Uh, really fascinating insight, I think, mm. into mm. Uh, the situation facing Ukrainians who have come here, as well as a little bit about her own views, I suppose, for her country and whether or not she'll return there. Uh, it is interesting. We were just talking about it there as we finished off. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so interesting that one of her first experiences of Irish, you know, of, of arriving in Ireland is, first of all, being here on St. Patrick's Day as her arrival yeah, date. Yeah. And then being handed Peach Penny's pajamas is, yeah. is, is pretty that. Irish, isn't like, it? Yeah. Thanks, Juan Penny's. Total yeah. Irish culture. It's yeah. Like really more Irish than the Irish themselves straight away. I was, I was really struck by, I mean, maybe you got a better sense of it, Zara, when you were there in March, but that mm -hmm. I wasn't aware that the Irish government had made a point of trying to communicate to the people in Ukraine that the country was effectively open for business, that we had waived visas, that we were going to allow full refugee status for at least a year and mm. that we were arms wide open. Yeah. And knowing that they did, it's very striking then that she says that, you know, there hasn't been a similar follow up now to sort of make people fully aware that if they were coming, that they're not going to be coming to great living circumstances because mm -hmm. we've effectively run out of beds. Yeah, the time I was there now, there wasn't that. Well, I didn't see that communications because I don't think the decision had been fully made around that time when I was there. But it, I think she seems to be pointing to, and I feel like we've talked a lot about communications issues on this podcast and this government, but she is kind of more or less saying, isn't she, that this is the issue that, like she was basically saying that like in the beginning, there was this kind of reasonable expectation of what people could anticipate coming to Ireland that she was saying they were promised kind of hotel accommodation. She's saying that didn't really deliver in a lot of cases. 
cases um, that, you know, they, there was some level of reasonable expectation if, when you came to Ireland. Now she's saying that there's not the same level of transparency in terms of what people can expect. I, I think that's interesting because uh, this is something that the Ukrainian ambassador said over the weekend mm. is that um, she said it was unacceptable and I think her, her comments have actually been quite distorted that um, it was basically now been treated as the Ukrainian ambassador said it was unacceptable that there was no accommodation rather than what she actually said which is that it was unacceptable that people weren't told that there'd be no accommodation yeah. and they might choose other countries and I think right. a lot of people have been politically spinning that mm-hmm. for their own gain but interesting that that, that communications thing is something that Alina picked up on as well. I actually must say, I got a DM from a, a Fine Gael, uh, member of the Oireachtas there uh, just actually yesterday, I think, saying that the Ukrainian ambassador must withdraw her comment uh, about what? the accommodation shortage. I think I got the same one. Actually. Probably did. Debrief afterwards. It, yeah. it probably the same thing, that she must withdraw this uh, comment and that uh, Ireland has been forthright about the situation at all times, which is interesting when if the people who are on the receiving end of the message aren't, aren't getting that. Correctly, mm. Then there is a communication yeah. issue. And, uh, and I just think that uh, there's almost a softness towards any criticism for what is a difficult situation to manage. Mm. It's a difficult situation to manage, but you have to be open to criticism and a bit of feedback along the way. But like, I feel like we have been saying this to government ministers, all of us at doorsteps for the last like four months at least, if not more than that. You know, I remember having a doorstep with a minister back in sort of April, March time, or sorry, April, May time saying, like it's all well and good for us to be, you know, uh, yeah, we're opening the doors and we're, we're, you know, letting people in. But if we can't offer people a reasonable standard of accommodation, then are we part of the problem as opposed to being part of the solution? And you were just kept, like, I suppose the mantra has always been that people are safer here than they are in Ukraine. And obviously mm. you can't, you know, it's difficult to argue that that, but it's just that, you know, Alina is, is talking about that today in the sense that you can't invite people here and then have them effectively coming here to be homeless. Like that's not an acceptable standard of living. And like, government ministers have known about this for a really long time. And it's just that when it was that short notice, like, oh, we're running out of space. It was like, really, I think we kind of knew that this was going to happen about four months ago. So mm. why are you only... It had happened. It had happened. Like, why are you only flagging it now? And I think there was a bit of clarity there from Alina as well, that it's not as if those who are coming here are ungrateful and that if they were told or if they were given some not reasonable at all. explanation They're as, incredibly to, as to what grateful. they were going to, to, to arrive into, that they'll still likely come because... As, as she didn't mm-hmm. say herself but I think the implication was fairly clear mm-hmm. they would rather be on a gym floor in Dublin than be at home with the risks that they face yeah. being at home yeah. so that like just take that as a given but that if they only knew what they were coming to then it wouldn't feel like it was an immediate letdown because I'm, I'm sure it would sow seeds of doubt in people's minds as well that if, if you're coming and you think you're going to have at least some sort of hotel or sheltered accommodation and then you end up in a gym then it, it sort of makes you wonder whether anything else that you might have promised if you're told that you're going to have access to the labour market or if you're told you're going to have access to certain welfare payments that it would sow seeds of doubt in their mind too as to what exactly they're coming here and then when when they're coming and they're coming with with their, their arms wide open they're coming to a veil of generosity it, it's a real shame to feel like you're letting them down on the very first day they arrive. Completely and you know when you talk about Larissa Garasco the Ukrainian ambassador as well I think like this idea of misinterpreting her comments is interesting because like the whole way through she has been nothing but careful with her wording and has actually been nothing but dignified in what has been a really difficult time for her people. And I think to give that woman credit where it's due, she has absolutely held herself with great dignity and respect and has always expressed gratitude to Ireland for what they've done uh, for her people. And so, you know, I think it's quite unreasonable actually to have taken what she said in that context and and twisted. I think like that's, you know, it's very much taking away her character in some Mm. ways in terms of uh, insinuating that 
she have been in some way ungrateful. That is absolutely not the case and that she's not been known for being mm. like that at all. She's been nothing but uh, dignified and grateful through this whole thing. And it is something to watch now as things progress. Uh, I was up in um, Cavan at the British Irish Parliamentary gathering, conference, whatever you want to call assembly, it, so assembly, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Taoiseach was speaking at that and it was after the weekend of um, all of the difficulty that ha- there has been with regards to accommodation for refugees, both from Ukraine and those through the international protection uh, system as well. And he did express concern about political exploitation of these things, mm-hmm. that there would be spins, that there would be um, people who are looking to exploit some concerns which local people might have about things like modular housing and really trying to get their own gain out of it. And I think that is something Mm -hmm. to watch as we push on through the winter on this. But with regards to actually what is going to be put in place to try and address this issue, I was covering the um, Cabinet Subcommittee meeting earlier on in the week about what could possibly be done. There was stuff like talking about Defence Forces barracks, Mm a lot of uh, accommodation there which hasn't been used yet. Also the fact that some of those sites would actually now suit then to put some modular housing on because I think some of the concern that we've seen in some places like in Mayo Mm. is that some local people and some local councillors don't want to see modular housing going up in the centre of a town and then it be there forever that they're looking yeah, at that. because it just yeah. changes the character of the town centre which is which is kind of a reasonable point and then also sometimes gets taken up in other ways as well where it's presented as if it's some sort of malicious anti-Ukrainian housing or anti-any kind of housing when maybe it's meant in, in a different way um, so I think the fruits of that subcommittee I think are going to be signed off by cabinet as a whole on Friday they're not going to meet again it's one of those incorporeal meetings where they all get individually phoned up and they're asked are you okay with us doing certain things okay. they're going to sign off on probably some planning changes to allow for, for modular housing. They're going to sign off on increasing the allowance that Alina mentioned, the €400 Euro allowance that people currently get for, for offering out lodging. That's going to be increased to €800. Euro. By their own admission, a lot of government sources don't think it's going to make that much of a difference, but if it helps, it helps and so be it. Um, and they're also then going to be talking about taking on some of those Defence Forces barracks. And somewhat ironically, uh, and maybe this is where the lines get blurred between the short-term refugee accommodation crisis and the longer term accommodation crisis. Um, a lot of the Defence Forces barracks had been privately earmarked once upon a time to be, you know, completely remodelled or to be repurposed and to be ultimately used for long term public social housing. Okay. And now that's going to happen, but probably not for the circumstances as was originally intended. And that's maybe where a lot of the, the distrust or some of the political unease creeps in. That's something that was intended for for long-term housing for those who are already here is going to be long-term housing but for, for new arrivals to the shores. And I was just what are the, I don't actually know the numbers maybe we don't just what are the numbers arriving every week now? Have they slowed down? Or it has they... slightly slowed down last yeah. I'd heard. So basically it was up to a peak of around 13, 1400 as far as yeah. I'm aware yeah. early on in October when you saw a lot more of those missile attacks happening yeah. in Kiev and other yeah. city centres. Yeah. Um, that sparked a, a, a really a, a, a sort of a renewed pushed for the exit doors really. People who had stayed said we have to get out of here. People who had stayed actually in some cases some people who had actually returned to Ukraine actually left again. Actually Alina sort of mentioned that as well uh, when she was talking to her friends. That has dropped off somewhat a little bit back to down towards the 1,000 mark per week as far as I'm aware from people I've been talking about. So that's dropped down a little bit but they aren't they can't really be certain as to you know where the numbers are going. Remember Zara when we were talking about this at the start and Mm. the government sources were quoting figures of 200,000. 200,000. Yeah. Mm. So mm. there is a real lack of certainty and that will ebb and flow depending on the circumstances of the war itself as well. Yeah. One thing as well, just to finish off on on, on Alina before, before we go and we're incredibly grateful for her for coming in. Absolutely. Um, her views on sort of the political situation both here and in Ukraine, I think it's worth mentioning because it is very easy to get into the circumstances where you think 
here's what one person says and she's from Ukraine, so this is what Ukrainians think. Yeah. Whereas we are all Irish people and if you see the political disagreements yes, that we have in our absolutely. country, those yeah. also apply in, mm. in, 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 in Ukraine. So her views on whatever the state of Ukraine will be going forward, very much not shared by a lot of Ukrainian people, I would know. Uh, so it is interesting. It's great to hear different perspectives. So if we do have anybody yeah. from Ukraine who's living here or elsewhere, do let us know your own thoughts there, on that. There was only a big global forum in the last couple of days in Berlin where they were talking about the Ukrainian government looking for a lot of international aid to help rebuild, to try and return it to as close as its previous state as possible. So uh, mm. who knows whether it ever happened, but it is at least the stated goal of the Ukrainian government and for a lot of their international allies to try and put it back to as close to, if not better than, uh, the infrastructural state that it was in before all this happened. Definitely. I think the majority of people that come here, Richard, don't they say they want to go home eventually? Like They have an optimism or an ambition to return. They do, yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would as well in your situation. Totally. Like, it depends on... There's so many different factors. Some places, some towns have effectively been wiped off the map. Yeah. That is something you do need to bear in mind with some with regards to some Ukrainians. So it's very difficult when you haven't got that family attachment or that home to return to. Yeah. But for some others, if you're, you know, fled from Kiev or you fled from Kharkiv, that you might want to go back to that city, which was, you know, it's very much part of your character and the essence of your being. But we'll come back to Ukraine, I'm sure, uh, in future episodes. But we want to round off on many, many weeks of uh, UK coverage. Uh, <laughs> we, I feel like we've talked about this. this, well, this is We're going to keep this brief because I'm tired of it. Season two of the group chat and we're on our third British Prime Minister. <laughs> we're outlasting them. Happens. They're dropping like flies. Yeah. I wonder if we'll get another one by the end of the season. Do you know what? I kind of secretly love it. I do love it. I think it's been brilliant. Like mm. It's been quite... I mean, just I've I've had so many great nights flicking between the news channels. I have to say, I've just loved it. Like it has been great. It has been great. Uh, I I thought that I was the biggest political nerd here, and that's that's no, I'm sorry, I love that's it. The, like among the saddest. I love when we're live texting each other the BBC News at ten. I'm like, we're nerds, oh, but those, I love those it. nights are wild. They're great. Yeah. So to, to recap, um, we do have another British Prime Minister by the name of Rishi Sunak. He is the youngest British Prime Minister in the last two hundred years, at the age of forty two. He's also the first British Asian Prime Minister, which is a um fantastic, I suppose, cultural landmark in that country. Uh, but he does face a lot of challenges. It is remarkable that he has ended up there as I was watching um, Prime Minister's questions there today that he uh, he lost the leadership election to Liz Truss uh, and he's ended up there effectively by default. Mm. Uh, and uh, the person who beat him very handily to the, the the Conservative leadership was also beaten by a lettuce. Yes. Um, so <laughs> it is remarkable to see him finally end up there. Yeah. Do you remember when Liz Truss, remember you went, oh, never have I known a British Prime Minister to have a busier entry and I was like, but Gav, we always said that about Prime Ministers. But yes. I really feel like Rishi Sunak. Like, but it's great. I feel like it's Rishi kind of Sunak is really now this like this the exponential yeah. curve of yeah. stuff in the entry because yeah. if he had taken the job seven weeks ago, because it's only seven weeks since oh, he was gosh. beaten by Liz Truss. If he had taken the job seven weeks ago, the job would be objectively an awful lot easier than it now is. But I was just going to say, and like, would, would Britain be a totally different place had he oh, originally... Not, not know, in necessarily a totally different place. But, but there would have been a lot of things. So much of what he and his government now have to do is to try and reinforce this idea that they are a credible global player, not only politically, diplomatically, but also financially, because that's a reputation that's been pretty much dragged to shreds by the last 50 days. So the, like the cost of borrowing for the British government, which is the real benchmark, has come back down now to about where it was seven mm -hmm. weeks ago. But anything that might sound like it's injecting a little bit of doubt or a little bit of, uh, you know, hesitancy into the whole thing, will see the cost of borrowing for the British government increase quite a bit again. And that will have knock-on effects for everyone else in the country. If you've got a variable rate mortgage, suddenly your mortgage will become dearer. And of course, there's still the huge cost of living crisis in the country and inflation is there, is running at 10%. So there's, there's an enormous amount to do. And because of the events of the last seven weeks, anything that he might like to do is likely to be that little bit more challenging to pull off. 
as well as of course the fact that the public didn't put him in there in the first place and how many times can you credibly get away with changing leader before eventually deciding that the public need to have their say. Can I just one of the best quotes I saw was somebody who was a comedian who said I've had more of a say on the winner of Love Island than I have in the Prime Minister of my own country. The true democracy of Great Britain (laughs) is that phone in vote. Um, Having covered this for the last couple of days it is interesting to see how he has assumed the role. Mm. His first thing was his acceptance speech which was about um, how long was his acceptance speech in the end? It wasn't very long. It was about a minute uh, and 34 it, 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 seconds. His conservatives uh, was a minute and 23 seconds mm. yeah which was shorter than the minute and 29 that Truss had done when she resigned. It, it was incredibly robotic. It was straight down. It struck to me as a, a very nervous speech. People again were pointing out as I'd forgotten he did. He did sound somewhat like Will from the Inbetweeners uh, in terms of <laughs> vocal uh, uh, doppelganger. Government um, But he then uh, obviously once he got into number 10 did a much better speech I would say mm. but it was so interesting what he did say in those in those speeches in that he very much did lay the blame on Liz Truss's doorstep mm. saying that mm. mistakes were made I've been elected to fix them he also and I think this is actually what's probably been missed is actually he did fire a shot back across the bow of Boris Johnson now it's fairly understood now that Boris Johnson's camp and Richie Sunak's camp absolutely loathe each other in some sort of Mm -hmm. death row like (laughs) uh, they are very much identity Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty falling off the Reichenbach Falls they're going to go down together it's the only way Boris Johnson did not his his sweeping back into power did not deliver him back into power um, Richie Sunak in his speech just to, to, to sort of hammer home the reference he says that the 2019 election which Boris Johnson yeah Ron I, I won that that was my mandate yeah, yeah. Richie Sunak saying that doesn't belong to any one individual mm. wink wink Boris Johnson uh, because Boris Johnson after failing Zara mm-hmm. in his I'm coming back early from holidays I'm a serious man yeah. um, <laughs> very much pointed to the fact that I'm the only one who can win an election were you surprised to see him throw in the towel this time I mean, look, Boris Johnson will still fancy himself for a comeback at some stage in his life, but I mean, he needs to take a leaf out of the likes of Kylie Minogue's book. She's the comeback queen, and I think she could definitely give Boris Johnson a couple of tips. Uh, if, if that includes sartorial, that's a that's an image I'm going to need in that break to get my head around. That's that's <laughs> Boris Johnson in hot pants. No, I, I need a moment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, welcome back to the group chat. Uh, Other big news this week in Ireland was something that was long mooted. Pubs to be allowed to remain open until 12.30 a.m. Seven days a week. Mm. Nightclubs allowed to stay open until 6 a.m. under this new overhaul of licensing laws which was approved 
by the government. Gav, you were covering this. What, just mm. run through some of the, the, the key actual changes here and what, what a difference they'll make yeah. to how nightlife runs in this country. So pubs are currently seven days a week only allowed to remain open until half past 11. I think last order's possibly at 11 and then kick you out at half past 11 and that's it, the doors are shut. Now mm. it's going to be half past 12 and they're going to be allowed to open at the same time every day of the week. So whereas they're only allowed to open at half 12 on Sundays now, they'll be allowed to open if they want to from half 10 every day of the week and close at half past midnight. Um, Currently as it stands, and this has been a real bone of contention, and we would have covered this a bit during lockdown where they were talking about how difficult it was to get going. Nightclubs and late bars have to apply for a new licence, a special exemption order it's called, every night that they want to stay open beyond the usual mm. closing time. Mm. And it's hugely expensive and then it means that they end up having to charge a little bit more for late drinks because they need to cover their overheads. That's now going to be gotten rid of. There's only going to be a single licence you can apply for on an annual basis. You get it once for a nominal fee and that's it. So it's like rolling permission. Rolling permission for, yeah, for a yeah. full year at a time, just as you get with a pub licence every year. Yeah. You'll be allowed to stay open until half past two and nightclubs as you mentioned Richard will be allowed to stay serving until five o'clock if there is a dance floor that covers 20% of the floor space of the premises and if there is a live That's the definition of a DJ. nightclub That's yeah I love that definition of a nightclub. <laughs> uh, the, the government has legislated for the definition of nightclubs um, if there's live music or live DJ they're allowed to serve until five and have dancing until six o'clock in the morning um, now it's worth Legs would be tired of that hour in the morning that's well, I, I just wouldn't have the energy to be staying out that late to talk I've about, seen uh, you I'm, hold on at that hour of the night now. I can't anymore no you can't anymore we're definitely in your day you definitely in my day in, in your day I'd have carried, I'd have carried through <laughs> we uh, yeah we <laughs> had a few late night dances in our like, day th- th- it's an enormous body of work to do because the, oh, there's such a hodgepodge and patchwork quilt of laws that already exist that actually it's a very laborious thing to go through them all and figure out which parts you're going to take which parts you're not and then to, to wipe the whole slate clean and it's taken ages to even get it this far and it's probably going to be sometime before the middle of next year before they actually get all of this in place. The problem, of course, being that as as we'll have heard and as a lot of our, our viewers and listeners will have been telling us in the last couple of days that it's five or ten years too late because you're talking about nightclubs being allowed to stay open until six o'clock in the morning. Well, where is your nearest nightclub? Because once upon a time... Because it closed down. Yeah, I think was it, yeah, the, the, take the Give Us mm. the Night campaign, I think, had figures that in the middle of the 2000s there were... 460 odd uh, they might be able to clarify for this I think it was 460 odd nightclubs I think in, in the Republic yeah. in the middle of the noughties and at last count which was possibly even pre-pandemic there were 85 what? If you think of a lot of like regional 85? Regional yeah. towns, the number of actual just one club now designated nightclubs has mm. fallen through the floor yeah I did not that was, that was that. that was a trend before the pandemic yeah. and actually that obviously hastened things as well. That's enormous. Yeah. I didn't realise it was that. There's one other part as well which I didn't realise was part of licensing law and which is significant but it's going to take a couple of years to do which is that right now if you want to open a new pub or a new off licence you can't go to a court and say can I have a licence please? You have to buy the licence off someone who's already got one mm-hmm. uh, which means that if you have a supermarket that wants to open up a new off licence they'll end up buying the licence from some other pub or some other off licence that pub closes and then it doesn't really come back. And a lot of rural places that have had an off license that might have shut or a local pub that might have shut, if that license is surrendered, nobody goes to court and gets it renewed. That license is kind of gone and gone forever. And now they're going to allow people to go back to court and apply for a new license. It's going to be a couple of years before they do that. But at least they're going to give people the option to open up pubs where no pub previously existed before, which could be great for more rural parts. That's what I was going to ask you. So the, the nightclubs that closed down and their licences lapsed, did they ever get to come if, back? If or, they, if they lapsed, gone? They, are, they are gone. And, gone. The current law and they, and they wow. will stay gone at least for three years. But a lot of the time what happens is that they get bought by the local supermarket because they want to open an off licence, but they need the licence to actually do that. So they buy the licence that was held by your local nightclub and that's where the license goes, which then you're wondering, oh God, I wonder would the hotel ever open up that nightclub again? I remember. They just don't have the license to do it. Growing up in Waterford, like when I first started going out when I was 18 and like there was 
four and I, there was a corner in Waterford City and it was like there was Rubies. We used to go to Rubies back in the day and uh, there was Masons across the road. It was kind of like a late bar nightclub and then there was Muldoon's and then there was Revolution. Like there was like four nightclubs within like on one corner. Like mm. it was like Waterford was kind of hopping in its day. Wow. Yeah. But, it, but did you not <laughs> think you would have probably had, well, I don't know. maybe not Rush doesn't have a nightclub, does it? Scaries did. Scaries did, okay. I'm not did, sure what's did, there now. Past tense. I'm not sure. I actually genuinely don't know. But like, see, it was Scaries um, and Balbriggan for us, really. So it was Shags in Scaries and uh, <laughs> Home in Balbriggan. Home. Home in Balbriggan. Shags and Home. And then for a wow, while, it was um, the right venue then in... Um, oh, yeah. They used to do a bus down to the right venue yes. in Swords mm. as well. Us country kids used to watch the kids in Dublin going to the right venue thinking it was With 50 Cent and what that were yeah. turning up. Like. 50 Cent played Waterford, you know, one time. Yeah, it's actually the remember that. that. Yeah. The, the late Greg Coolio played Waterford one time, didn't really? he? Really? Yeah, I, I think that the, the local... I was there that, the day um, 50 Cent Darren Skelton played. from the Waterford News and Star was, was uh, posting this. Darren Skelton now, to. give him a shout out. He used to organise a lot of great club nights in Waterford back in the day. Including Night from Coolio. Yeah, it was So like nightlife in the country has really withered in the last... It's multiple things. It's the price of drink and it's people pre-drinking, which means that there isn't as much of an appetite for them to go to somewhere for the whole length of a night and nightclubs find that harder to pay the overheads if people are going to be in for the last couple of hours but like mm-hmm. it is striking how, how few clubs there are now if you just objectively order them compared so to 10 years ago. Where do go when you're in college if there's Hard no nightclubs now? Raves. It's, it's, there's a lot of, it's an informal thing now as well because oh. uh, because as you were sort of mentioning Gav this bit has been sort of behind the times in that this is something people have been asking for and they've been asking for things like night czars and stuff like that mm. for quite a long time. People have gone and taken it on themselves to do their own thing. I think there's actually been some reporting around this. I think the Irish Times even did stuff about, you know, Wicklow, Mountains Raids and all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of, I know a lot of people involved in the techie sector in Dublin who have these warehouse raves and all that sort of stuff mm. over the last number of years. So that's kind of where people have strayed towards. They've strayed away from the actual licensed part of things mm. and mm-hmm. into sort of the I suppose the sort of the grey area of it really. But it's, it's probably only economical, whatever about the, the, the legal grey areas, it probably only makes sense if you take the warehouse for once every three or six months rather than having your rolling licence where you expect to open You can't do that, yeah. You can't do <laughs> Zara, are you surprised by this? I mean, do you think this is going to be a good thing or what do you reckon? I mean, I, I suppose like, yeah, I mean, one would hope so that, I mean, I didn't, I just didn't probably realise actually, I'm glad we've had this kind of about the like the low level of nightclubs. It might be interesting to see if we'll have new nightclubs opening back up again. But I think kind of based on what we're talking about now, will people go back to nightclubs is the question. You know, if people have kind That's of become accustomed to like a different way of socialising or a mm. different uh, way of having a night out, as you say, maybe it's a little bit too little too late. But I mean, yeah, look, I mean, it's a long time since I've kind of, I feel like really old now. I feel like before the pandemic, we were good crack, right? <laughs> Nah, I don't know. Debatable. Debatable. Cracker, I don't know if I was ever good. We used to go out. So I used to work on the news desk in another place and we'd finish at midnight on a Thursday evening and we'd be off on a Friday and we used to go out like at midnight. We'd be finished work on the news desk. You wrote a few of those nights. Absolutely. Yeah. Times. yeah. Would, would they have kept going till six o'clock if you had the chance? Four, like definitely four. Which is technically illegal, isn't it? Is, no, well, we had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> now, but Who knows? There will be, there'll be yeah. people, by the way, who'll be thinking, you know, is this not a real public health thing? And we've only just introduced minimum unit pricing. So should we be allowing people more hours to drink? Yeah. Firstly, minimum unit pricing was to stop people buying slabs and drinking them at home. I don't think there's any danger about the uh, alcohol being too affordable when you go out. But B, um, it's been proven in the UK that where they ha- experimented even with 24-hour licences, some pubs that literally never close. Yeah. You mm-hmm. don't have people going in there and binging until their body packs up. They, they eventually 
come out in dribs and drabs. And that is part of the goal as well, that instead of having the one night that we went out mid-pandemic liftings and you couldn't get a taxi for love and money at half past 11 because oh, the yeah. entire city was emptied out at once, that it does allow the whole thing to roll over and distribute a bit more so that hopefully when you are coming out of a nightclub at whatever hour, mm. there's a little bit more of a, a throughput of taxis to get you home. Sarah, you were working on something else this week. You were working on yeah. a report into abortion. Um, this yeah. is something which is actually, I think, in light of what's happened in other countries, I think there's now a bit of a renewed focus on how abortion yeah. is provided here, isn't there? Yeah, so this is the Irish Women's Council. Um, we're publishing this report this week and there was just a bit of research into how abortion is is working in Ireland at the moment and just getting some feedback from women who've been through the system. So um, they spoke to 48 women who had had um, an abortion under 12 weeks and just kind of wanted to listen to, to what they had been through. It was interesting to hear that one of the big challenges still remains safe access zones. So um, despite the fact that uh, abortion is available in Ireland, that women are still struggling to actually get to a GP that actually helps and provides with that. So only one in eight GPs at the moment are providing the service. Um, and women talked about experiencing, um, you know, going to maybe a GP who doesn't provide the service and perhaps being maybe tried to be talked out of it, even though she had made her decision before she went there and things like that. So, um, you know, it was interesting to hear the clarity on that is that people should go to the My Options website where they'll be offered three GPs within their local area um, that they know will be able to provide the service. But it was really interesting because I think despite the fact that we've known about abortion being available in Ireland for a long time, admittedly, a lot of us don't understand how that process actually works. So um, it was interesting to speak uh, at the event yesterday uh, to someone who was able to explain to us in detail exactly how the system works and uh, what the process exactly is. So for most women, they went to their GP and had the first uh you know, took the first medication there, um, they would have gone home and generally felt fine. The most symptoms they would have had from that was some cramping. And 24 hours later, they took the next um, medication. And once the second medication is taken, women described usually um, beginning to bleed, beginning for the, you know, the products of uh, conception to begin to leave their body. So look, I think it's just interesting to hear how that process works. I think actually a lot of us um, maybe didn't understand how it works. Uh, we're told that 6.5 thousand, 6.5 thousand abortions have taken place in Ireland since it became uh, legal. But as I say, uh, the outstanding issue really is about those safe access zones and also sort of calls for maybe a daycare facility where women can go um, if they're going through an abortion that they have a space to go to to be treated. Because in some examples, people didn't have kind of privacy in their own home to go through it. So this was just something else that was possibly suggested um, for something going forward. Before we finish up this week, uh, the actions of a climate activist group, Just Stop Oil, has uh, garnered attention around the world. Uh, first of all, people might have seen they slopped um, tomato soup mm. at uh, Vincent van Gogh's uh, sunflowers, which was behind glass. They threw mashed potato in Germany uh, at a Monet painting. Uh, they flung chocolate cake in the faces of King Charles and Camilla at Madame Tussauds in London as well. Not the real King Charles and Queen Camilla because that would be objectively quite interesting. <laughs> That'd be a hell of a, yeah. But King hell of a Charles for them. is like the OG environmentalist though. Is he though? Uh, but like hasn't he been like, you know, He's before everyone else he was kind of in fairness. Yeah. He's definitely um, spoken out about environmental issues, all right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think, it wasn't there a whole, there was a controversy between himself and the former Prime Minister Liz Truss about whether or not he would go to COP27 oh, in right. Egypt, there was, yeah. Okay. Trust was, was around for seven weeks and she managed to embroil herself in multiple uh, controversies. That, that's quite impressive for the short period that she was there. Um, I kind of find the whole thing curious because I, before, when it was just the tomato soup one on Vincent van Gogh, I was like, oh, is this a, an exhibit that's sponsored by some oil company? Because often you might have a, you know, an exhibition in a gallery which is sponsored by some fossil a shell or something. Or that's that, why yeah. they've, they've gone for it. And that didn't appear to be the case. And I'm, I have to admit that I'm 
other than it literally just being quite literally a publicity stunt for the, for whatever value there is, I don't know why you would target further priceless works. I mean, I, I even get the the point about you can say, well, I feel like the fact that we're having this conversation, well, they won. Like the, the argument 100%. that they put back was, oh, well, you know, there's only one. This is a priceless masterpiece by Vincent van Gogh. Wouldn't it be terrible if somebody destroyed something which was, you know, priceless and impossible to replace? Like in the tin planet. Tins, like the planet. Yeah. Um, but a, a waxwork of the king and queen is slightly less irreplaceable. So I don't yeah. know whether it's... Definitely could make it again. Yeah. If you had the mould. I do think it's interesting because, um, I mean, in, to some degree, it does prove their hypothesis that you will care more about the artwork and for some reason the waxwork of King Charles III uh, <laughs> than uh, the uh, imminent doom of the planet in many ways. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't now, I, I must say I haven't followed exactly what the reasoning was behind the choosing of the targets, but there has been so much backlash at the activists. I think even Richie Sunak, even Prime Minister's Questions was having a, mm. a dig at them as well. Was he? Yeah. The, the Tories don't like the... Mm. The protesters of any of any real kind. Yeah. Keir Starmer was more focused with trying to support the layabout tofu eating wokerati that were destroying artwork than getting people back to work and getting the train the moving. And not 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 the direct quote. Something but that was along the those lines. General gist of it. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I have a rough You're getting explanation rough as to why they did the thing about King Charles. So apparently last year at COP26 in Glasgow, which you were at, Kevin, mm-hmm. uh, Queen Elizabeth said the time for uh, words has moved to the time for action. Uh, McFadden, Ellie McFadden, 20-year-old from Glasgow, said, the science is clear. The demand is simple. Just stop no new oil and gas. It's a piece of cake. So really trying uh, to hold Charles to Elizabeth's words. I get it. it I, I also get it, but... Um, I like the creativity like, around it. Who are you trying to convince? Like, Charles is, if not the OG uh, environmentalist, he's certainly inherited a love of the natural world from his father, and he's quite a green-fingered bloke, so I just... Don't uh, yeah, like I think there's in. a lot of things you could say, but like in fairness, he has been fairly outspoken about, you know. But it, again, the thing is about words versus actions. Yeah, fair. And how much yeah, that's very international fair. travel and how much, what is the carbon footprint of the British royal family? Yeah. Answers on a postcard, well, folks. Slightly less now that Charles isn't going to Egypt for COP27, isn't well, he? Well, is he? Is he? But is that back in the cards now that oh, no, Liz, a new PM. Liz Truss has abandoned her post? <laughs> <laughs> they'll need him to be a stand-in prime minister by that rate of go. <laughs> it is worth, though, I think I think before we go, it is worth sort of, like at least, whether or not it's a successful action and it has public support, I don't think there's been a lot of talk about the fossil fuel industry and oil and gas mm-hmm. exploration on a huge level in terms of the overall discussion around climate change. And maybe it's something we could revisit at some points. I'd like, mm-hmm. we should definitely do another piece yeah. on this. I would love that. Absolutely. There we go. So there you go. So therefore, therefore the protest did work. Okay. I say well Mission done on the creativity. In well impacting people. running order for this show and potentially a future one, that is yeah. an unmitigated That's success. A win. That's that is a win. Huge win. <laughs> that is all we have time for though on this edition of the group chat. I uh, loved this one this week. There you I go. That was one. a good episode. You Alina was great. Next week or the week after? Uh, both. Both weeks. Both weeks. Next yeah. week. So I'll, I'll, more details to be revealed, Ooh, but I will be, I'll be phoning in. Sleep, that is the yeah. cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks so much for joining us once again in the group chat. Zara, Gavin. Thank you very thanks much. Thanks, guys. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.